Pleasure to be back with you tonight. If, if I look a little bit familiar to you, you look a little bit familiar to me too. I've been here a few times and uh, so I appreciate the opportunity to come back and speak to you. There was one time I want to tell you about, a, one time I was talking to this, this lady, I was in her house and uh, we were talking about the Bible and I was encouraging her to be baptized. And she sat there, she and her daughter, uh, her daughter was about 16, I believe. We sat there and, and we talked for an hour, maybe not an hour. And we, we went through this, this series of verses and she was nodding in agreement the entire time. That, that sounds right. The way you are presenting that, that sounds right. That verse, that really does say exactly what you said it says. That verse, that says exactly what you said it says. And we, you know, we talked about our need for God's grace, our, our need for repentance, our need for confessing our sins and admitting that we are sinners and we need God. And we got to Acts 2.38 and she said, you know, that does say repent and be baptized. We, we looked at, I don't, I, I can't name off every script, but Acts 22.16. Something it, that really does say, be, you know, Romans six three and four. That does say you go down into the water, and that's that's what baptism's all about. And and we got to the end of that period of time, and she said, "I want to get baptized." That, the Bible tells me I I need God's grace because I'm a sinner and I need to get baptized. Uh, are you? She looked at her daughter. Are you ready to do that? And her daughter said, "Yeah, let's go do it." They went and got the other daughter. The other daughter was 14. She had been sort of sitting off 10 feet away, not really participating and sort of listening out of the, you know, out of the corner of her ear, you know how that goes. And uh, she had heard about, and her mama goes over to that 14-year-old daughter and she says, listen, uh, we got we to gotta get baptized. Are you ready to get baptized? And I think the daughter, 14, I don't know, I don't know. And the mama said, this is important. We need to do this. We need to become Christians. We've got to get baptized. And that daughter, 14-year-old, and she said, you know, you're right, Mama. And they got up and they went. And we baptized those three girls that day. Those three women, maybe I should say. This happened in the Philippines. I couldn't understand a word they were saying to each other <laughs> because it was all in uh, Tagalog. And uh, I got the gist of it through a translator. Are you surprised that this happened in the Philippines and, and not uh, in America? Maybe not. I mean, this, these are the kinds of stories we associate with foreign mission trips. I've, I've got several stories where that sort of thing, I mean, that was a true story. That really happened. I, where that sort of thing happens pretty regularly. People are receptive to the message of the gospel. It's not always the case, of course. We've got this, this saying that we sometimes use, you know, people don't, what is it? People don't care how much you know until they know how much you care. I bet y'all have heard that saying. I bet y'all have said that saying before. You know, that's not always true. 
This lady in the Philippines sitting in this chair in her house, she didn't have any idea how much I cared. You know, I, I didn't do anything for her. I didn't bring her a sack of food. I didn't heal her of any disease or pay for her doctor's bill or electricity. She didn't have any electricity anyway. That would have been an easy one to take care of if I'd, I'll offer to pay for your utility bill. Uh, but, uh, you know, she didn't know how much I cared, but she thought I knew something about things that she wanted to know about. Sometimes that's not true, right? People sometimes don't really care how much you, uh, how much you care. They just want to know how much you know. Sometimes that happens. I'm thinking about Acts chapter 2, right? Day of Pentecost, Peter gets up and he preaches a sermon. He didn't... Uh, he did some miracles, I guess we could say. He spoke in tongues in front of these people, but he didn't heal anybody. He didn't spread, you know, God's love in that sort of way that we often think about. He didn't tell people how much he cared about them, but they wanted to know what he knew. And they were convinced he was right. He didn't have to build some program to evangelize these people. They wanted to hear it. And he baptized, the apostles baptized 3,000 people that day because they wanted to know what he knew. Sometimes, that saying we use, people don't care how much you know until they know how much you care. Sometimes that's just not true. I have been plenty of situations where that's just not the way it works. They want to know what you know. You don't have to buy them the groceries or whatever it is. Oftentimes in America, I find, now I'm not an expert necessarily on these matters, but oftentimes I find in America that is true. Because uh, we f- people think they already know what our motivations are. And so sometimes we need to convince them through alternative ways that, no, we're not out for this for any reason other than we want to share God's love with you. We're not out for this because, uh, because we, we think uh, the church you're going to is wrong and you ought to wind up over here. Or, or we're not out for this because of any other reasons that we want to share God's love and we want to help you know God, God's love more perfectly than you do. And sometimes they need convincing of that. This lady in the Philippines I just mentioned, she didn't need convincing of that. Those people in Acts chapter 2 on the day, they didn't need convincing of that. But sometimes in the people in our communities, they need convincing of that. And so that saying does sometimes apply. It doesn't apply all the time. What we are about as Christians, or what we ought to be about, what Christ appoints us to, is reconciling the world to God. I'm getting that phrase out of the Bible. Paul says that. That's 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17 and following. Let me just read that passage to you. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. I'll start in verse 16. That's where my Bible has a little heading. From now on, then, we do not know anyone from a worldly perspective, even if we have known Christ from a worldly perspective, yet now we know, no longer know him in this way. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. 
The old has passed away, and see, the new has come. Everything is from God who has reconciled us to Himself through Christ and has given us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to Himself, not counting their trespasses against them. And He has committed the message of reconciliation to us. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. Since God is making His appeal through us, we plead on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. He made the one who did not know sin to be sin for us, so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. We have been appointed by God for a purpose. And it's not just to enjoy God's grace by ourselves. Thank God we do enjoy God's grace. The purpose for which we have been appointed is to reconcile the world to God. He has told us, He has committed to us. I don't think Paul is just talking about himself or his cohort. He's committed to us the ministry of reconciliation. He has appointed us as ambassadors as well. We are ministers of reconciliation, and so our job, our constant job, reconcile the world to God. That's not a a new project that God is up to just since the death of Jesus. God has always been concerned about reconciling the world to him. You know, if you, if you look back at, and we're going to go back to, to Genesis here in just a second and, and think about Genesis. If you, if you look back at Genesis and you think about those first 11 chapters of the book of Genesis, I, I process those chapters through this, through this lens of sin and curse. You know, so like uh, creation happens in chapter 1 and, and chapter 2 and then chapter 3 we're already getting sin right Adam and Eve and they eat a fruit and uh, and so sin comes and do you remember what God does in response to the sin he, he comes to the garden what have you done did you eat from that tree I told you not to eat from Well, it was the woman. Well, it was the snake. And what did God do? Curse. Right? Genesis chapter 3, starting, what, verse 15 and following? He brought curse. He cursed that snake. He cursed the ground. He told the woman, you're going to increase your pain in childbirth and your desire will be for your husband. He told the man, the ground is cursed because of you. It's because of you this ground is cursed. You're going to be digging up vegetables and and fruit uh, because by the sweat of your brow, it's going to be tough now. It's going to be tough because it's cursed because of you. Sin came and God, as a response to that sin, he brought curse. And then you look in chapter 4 and there's there's murder, there's sin in chapter 4. Cain kills Abel and then uh, curse 
comes because of that sin. And then as, as the sin spreads throughout the world, that's what we see in Genesis 1 through 11. I mean, by the end of that, you know, you got the Tower of Babel and, and God is scattering people around because they're just in rebellion. They're, they're just arrogant and in rebellion against God and they want to make a name for themselves and they don't care about the name of God. They're just in it for themselves. And God scatters them around and as sin spreads, the curse spreads. Then you flip the page over to chapter 12. And here is the beginning of God's plan for how to take care of the problem of sin and curse. And instead of curse now in chapter 12, what do we have? Blessing. The response to curse in chapters 1 through 11 is blessing. In chapter 12, God calls this specific man. He's known as Abram at the time. The Lord said to Abram, Go out from your land, your relatives, and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And listen to this. I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. I will curse anyone who treats you with contempt and all the peoples on earth will be blessed through you. Abraham is going to be a blessing. All families, all nations will be blessed through Abraham. This is not the only time God says this, of course. If you're familiar with the book of Genesis, you know this particular promise is repeated uh, pretty often. There are several times that this promise is repeated after after Abraham nearly sacrifices his son, Isaac, on Mount Moriah in Genesis 22, right after that it says, it says uh, this is Genesis 22:15. Then the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven, said, By myself I have sworn this is the Lord's declaration. Because you have done this thing and have not withheld your only son, I will indeed bless you and make your offspring as numerous as the stars of the sky and the sand on the seashore. Your offspring will possess the city gates of their enemies and all the nations of the earth will be blessed by your seed or by your offspring because you have obeyed my command. He says it again. You are going to be the source of blessing. Your offspring. Your offspring is going to be the source of blessing for everyone on earth. The offspring of Abraham is going to be the source of blessing for everyone on earth. God didn't say it just to Abraham, though. Abraham had a kid. His name was, well, first he had Ishmael, but then he had Isaac. And God says the same thing to Isaac. This is Genesis 26. Where am I at? Verse 4. I will make your offspring as numerous as the stars. And God is talking to Isaac here. I will make your offspring as numerous as the stars of the sky. I will give your offspring all these lands and all the nations of the earth will be blessed 
by your offspring. That's to Isaac. Now, God doesn't say it just to Abraham and Isaac. He says it to Jacob as well. If you flip over a couple of chapters to chapter 28, verse 14, this is what he says to Jacob. Your offspring will be like the dust of the earth, and you will spread out toward the west, the east, the north, and the south. All the peoples on earth will be blessed through you and your offspring. There might be a few other times where God says this, but he says it to Abraham a couple of times at least. He says it to Isaac. He says it to Jacob. It's going to be Abraham's family, Abraham's offspring that becomes the source of blessing. Now I ask you, who is Abraham's offspring? Paul had a little bit to say about this. Remember, uh, Paul, Paul brought this up in Galatians chapter 3. Where he talks about this particular verse. This idea of the, the seed offspring. The seed. Paul made a big deal out of the fact that it's seed singular. It's not, it's not plural. In Galatians chapter 3. And then he said, let me tell you something about that seed. That seed is Jesus. But that's not the only thing he said. In Galatians chapter 3. If I'm... I'm going to turn there and read the end. Uh, well, well, first of all, let me read the beginning. Uh, this is Galatians chapter 3, verse 7. You know then that those who have faith, these are Abraham's sons. Who are the offspring of Abraham? Uh, look at the end of the, after that he, he makes a big deal about the, the singular seed and he talks about how Jesus is the seed of Abraham but then look at the end of that chapter verse 27 for those of you who were baptized into Christ have been clothed with Christ there is no Jew or Greek slave or free male or female since you are all one in Christ Jesus and if you belong to Christ then what? You are Abraham's seed. Heirs according to promise. Who is the seed of Abraham? Who is supposed to be the source of blessing to the entire world? All the nations of the world will be blessed through your seed, Abraham. Certainly Jesus Christ. The church. The church is the body of Christ. We are the seed of Abraham through Christ, certainly, through Christ. We are. We are those who have faith like Abraham. And by that, Galatians 3.7, we have become Abraham's children. The source of all blessing throughout the entire world is Abraham's seed. And I'm looking at Abraham's seed right now. We are appointed the task of being the source of blessing for all nations on this earth. Israel's offspring, uh, excuse me, Abraham's offspring, Israel, didn't always live up to this sort of lofty goal 
of being the source of blessing. Abraham didn't always live up to this lofty goal either, right? Uh, We might talk a little bit more about that later. But Israel, was Israel supposed to be a source of blessing to people in this world? Well, I I can think with you through a couple of of passages of Scripture. Let's let's think about Exodus chapter 19. We're flipping over a lot of Scripture this evening. I hope that's okay. I like the Bible pretty well. I hope you do too. Uh, Exodus 19, this is right after uh, God brought Israel out of Egypt. That happens in, you know, verse chapter 13, chapter 14. And he takes them to Mount Sinai. They arrive at Mount Sinai in chapter 19. And you remember, it's, it's a scary sight at Mount Sinai because there's thunder and lightning and the big dark cloud and the Israelites are terrified. But right before all that happens, that happens in sort of the halfway mark of chapter 19, right before all that, Moses, God talks to Moses and it says, it says uh, verse 3, Moses went up to the mountain to God and the Lord called to him from the mountain. This is what you must say to the house of Jacob and explain to the Israelites. God says to Moses, You have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I carried you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, if you will carefully listen to me and keep my covenant, you will be my own possession out of all the peoples, although the whole earth is mine, and you will be to me a kingdom of priests and my holy nation. These are the words you are to say to the Israelites. Isn't that interesting? Kingdom of priests. God says, Israel, you're going to be a kingdom of priests. Now those, those words might be familiar to you because of First uh, Peter 2.9. Peter quotes that on behalf of the church. What Israel was in Exodus 19, the church is now. The church is a royal priesthood. But God says to Moses, you tell the Israelites they're going to be my kingdom of priests. He doesn't exactly lay out. What does that mean? What is this kingdom of priests supposed to do? We can take some guesses. I think it's okay to take guesses about what God meant by that. What what do priests do? What are priests? They're servants. They do what? They, They represent God to men. Men to God. If you think about that, here is a here is a, a kingdom set apart as a kingdom of priests. What, what does it mean to say that they are priests? What does it mean to say that we're a royal priesthood? What does that mean? What, God has appointed us as a royal priesthood. What does He mean by that? We are servants who serve what? Serve ourselves. We, we, we serve, yeah, on behalf of God, we serve the world. We are appointed by God for that task of serving the world. God says, Israel, you're going to be a kingdom of priests. He doesn't exactly explain what he means by that, but we know what priests do. They represent God to men, men to God. They serve as intermediaries, intermediaries that's a hard word to say real quick, uh, between God and men. I suspect what God intended for Israel to be here is representatives. His representatives on earth. Be my priests. 
Now, they're not literally priests because we, we look over in Exodus chapter 28 and God has, God's appointing Aaron and his offspring as the literal priests in Israel. But the whole nation is supposed to represent God before this world, before these nations. There are a couple other passages, I think, point to this same thing. What I'm I'm trying to suggest to you is God has always been concerned about this. God has all... The Old Testament selection of Israel as his special nation, even... He says it right here. Out of all the nations on the world, the whole earth is mine, but you're going to be my special nation. That's not because God simply wanted to benefit one particular people and nobody else. He had no concern for the Egyptians. He had no concern for the Assyrians. He had no concern for the Native Americans and whoever else you want to name. The point was to select a people who would represent him in this world. It's because he loved everybody that he selected this one particular nation to represent him. Deuteronomy 4.6 I think points in the same direction. Deuteronomy chapter 4 verse 6 says this about the laws. I'll I'll go up to verse 5. Look, I have taught you statutes and ordinances as the Lord my God has commanded me. Moses is talking here. So that you may follow them in the land you are entering to possess. Carefully follow them. For this will show your wisdom and understanding in the eyes of the people's When they hear about all these statutes, they will say, This great nation is indeed a wise and understanding people. Isn't that interesting what what Moses imagines is going to happen? When Israel keeps this law, this law is a good law. Wise and understanding people keep this law, this society that God is creating in Israel with all these laws. If you read through Deuteronomy, I mean, it's not all about like... Don't do that. If you, if you cross this little line, I'm going to strike you down with lightning. If you cross the, it's You read Deuteronomy, it's a lot about care for the poor, the, the orphan and the widow. Uh, you know, there, there, were, there are laws, Deuteronomy 15, there are these laws in Deuteronomy about, you know, if you uh, give them tithes. Why do you give tithes to the to the priests? Because they got nothing else. The Levites, they got nothing else. They have they they are the poor. In the book of Deuteronomy, the Levites are the poor among you. You need to care for them. And every three years, you give this other tithe. In the book of Deuteronomy, you give this other tithe. You're going to take all your ten percent. You're going to go to the middle of town. You're going to dump it there in the middle of the town, and the orphans and the widows and the Levites and whoever else needs it, they're just going to go start collecting. It's like, um, you know, goodwill almost. It's, you're, just going to, you're providing for people. The book of Deuteronomy is very concerned with justice and creating this society that cares for, one, that represents God in this world. 
that represents the love of God in this world, that represents the justice of God in this world, that represents righteousness. What does it look like to have a relationship with God? The book of Deuteronomy is concerned with establishing a people that look like they have a relationship with God. And people are going to see that. The other nations will see the way you live and they will say, Whoa! Look at this wise and understanding people. What kind of God must they have? What kind of law do they live by? What must their... I am suggesting to you this is an insight into the whole point of God selecting Israel as his special people. Now we can say Israel didn't always live up to this lofty ideal. Let's cut Israel some slack. Does the church always live up to the lofty ideal? It does not. I think Paul also, I'm going to, I hope it's okay, we're skipping around. I, I think Paul had this idea. We get hints of it. You remember what he says in Romans 3 2? Paul is reflecting on Israel. Paul is reflecting on the benefits of being a Jew. And he has already said, you know, it doesn't matter one lick if you are circumcised or not circumcised. You know, if somebody keeps the law and he's not circumcised, then his uncircumcision will count as circumcision. And if somebody is circumcised and he doesn't keep the law, then his circumcision will count as, you know, it doesn't matter one iota. What, what it seems to be saying, what Paul seems to be saying is it doesn't matter if you're a Jew or not. Jew or Gentile, it doesn't matter. They're all the same. So what advantage has the Jew? And you sort of think, well, he's about to say none whatsoever, right? Isn't that what he's just been saying? And he says exactly the opposite. What advantage has the Jew? Great in every way. First, they were entrusted with the oracles of God. Now, have you ever reflected on that verse? They were entrusted with the oracles of God. Interesting word. Entrust. My son Marvin had a birthday. Uh, when was that? A week ago? This past Saturday. This past Saturday. We had a birthday party for Marvin. We, we um, presented him with birthday presents. He opened those birthday presents. He was very happy with it. We never once told him, we are entrusting this Iron Man to you, right? We, we are entrusting this Spider-Man costume to you. He wanted a Spider-Man costume. We got him. We, we t- we, we're giving this to you. It's yours. We didn't say, I entrust. When you give somebody a birthday present, you don't entrust the present to you. What does that mean, entrust? In what situations do you entrust something to somebody? I've got a financial advisor back in Florence. I entrust my money to him. You know what that means? He doesn't get to keep it. I want it back. It's not for him. I'm thinking Lord of the Rings analogy here. Lord of the Rings, uh, Frodo is entrusted with the ring to go destroy it. He's not supposed to keep that ring. There's a trust put into him. What advantage has the Jew? It's 
great in every respect. First of all, they were entrusted with the oracles of God. What does that suggest to you? It suggests to me that that God didn't give them the oracles as their own possession, the words of Scripture. He did not deliver to them the words of Scripture for their own possession. He entrusted the words of Scripture to them to use in the appropriate way. The appropriate way is representing God before the people of the world. Isaiah has a vision of how this will all go. In the last days, the mountain of the house of the Lord will be raised up as the chief of the mountains. Okay. In the last days, the mountain of the house of the Lord will be raised up as the chief of the mountains. You remember what happens there? This is Isaiah chapter 2, and, and people will be beating their swords into shares and their spears into pruning hooks. They're not going to learn war anymore. Do you know why? Because the nations in Isaiah chapter 2, this is verses 2 to 4, the nations are going to be streaming to Zion because they want to hear the law of the Lord. That's what Isaiah says. He says what the future looks like is that the nations, the Gentiles, are going to, they're going to hear about our wonderful law. They're going to hear about our wonderful God and they are going to want that. They're going to be streaming to Zion saying, teach me. We want to learn. The people of God Exodus 19, Genesis chapter 12, wherever you want to define it, whatever chapter you want to think about, the people of God are appointed for the task of reconciling the world to God. The source of blessing, the seed of Abraham, the source of blessing to all nations. And the point is illustrated at the end of the Bible. I'm not going to go to the very end, but Revelation chapter 7. Listen to the, the vision that John has. After this I looked, and there was a vast multitude, this is verse 9, from every nation, tribe, people, and language which no one could number, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. They were clothed in white robes and palm branches in their hands. What is this vision? People from every nation, tribe, people, and tongue all gathered together, worshiping God. That's, that's Isaiah's vision as well, and it should be our Vision. That's what God has appointed us to, to bring that vision to fruition because we are the seed of Abraham. We are the church, the body of Christ, appointed for the task of being ambassadors for God, ministers of reconciliation. Of course, I don't think we all do the same thing. I know we don't have a whole lot of time to think about this We're not all involved in this ministry of reconciliation in the exact same way, but we all should be involved. Ephesians chapter 4 has that list of 
different gifts that are given to people. Some, he actually says in there, some are evangelists, some are teachers, some are pastors, some are apostles and prophets and others. And all of these are appointed for this task to equip the church for the ministry, for the work of ministry. There are some that are specifically appointed to the task of evangelists. There are some that are specifically appointed to the task of teachers. There are some specifically appointed to other tasks as well, but all work together for the purpose of ministry. We're all supposed to participate in some way in the ministry of reconciliation, reconciling the world to God. That won't look the same for all of us, but what it should look like is the body working together for the growth of the body. That's what Paul talks about there in Ephesians chapter 4. All the parts working together for the growth of the body until we attain the full stature of Christ. We're not there yet. We need to keep working together to attain the full stature of Christ. Our task is reconciliation. Our task is to be a source of blessing to all people in this world. It's an enormous task that God has given us. And that's it. Thank you.